Hey, unfuckers, welcome to Show Notes for episode 67, where we examine the life and legacy of Bill fucking Clinton. 99, what's going on? How you doing? I'm good. I don't have COVID, so Yay. that's a positive. Yay. Before we got on, you were telling me what you think Bill Clinton looks like today. Can you describe that to the listeners? Because I think it's apropos, and maybe you could put a little image of that out on social. <laughs> sure. There is an episode of SpongeBob where he gets the suds, which is like a cold for him. And I think that's what Bill Clinton looks like. Like bubbles coming out of his face. Yeah, right? he just is like sallow and like green, and but also like puffy and weird. That's what he looks like to me. So Bill Clinton now suffering from the suds. But we're going to examine how exactly he got to be so sudsy in part three of this series. I'm disappointed that it's not going to get to episode 69 with his series. Uh. <laughs> I just felt like it would have been appropriate. Well, we can call it episode 69. Well, we can't because that's a lie. Mm. I'm no liar. You are no liar. I want to start with something different today, if that's okay with you. I want to talk about the website. And I want to talk about the website because it's one of these things where I was just, I was marveling once again at you, 99, and all of the things that you do that make this show special. There's no question that we are where we are because of everything that you do. And one of the ways that I think people can really wrap their minds around it, because what's fun for me is that we're, we're building this little media mini property and empire with just a couple of us, but it's we're building it together with the unfucking community. So a, a lot of the inspiration for the things that we do really comes from the community, and it winds up yes in the show and the content, and we talk about it, we and we read it out in show notes and things like that. But a lot of it also winds up in the website, and and that's where things materialize for UNFTR, and it's where we can kind of visually represent all of the work that Ninety Nine does to make this more than just people opening up a microphone and talking. So we'll talk a little bit about sound design in a second, particularly as it relates to this last episode. But when we just talk about the stuff that goes into this, first of all, the website is as accessible as we can possibly make it. And we've talked about this before, but like I asked 99 a question over the weekend about when you click on one of the menu items like about or memberships or the coffee store it leaves you on that page and doesn't take you to another page and I said hey can we do that where it jumps off and she's like no silly I've told you this before that's not accessible can you explain just that piece for a second please and I know this seems like this is so almost unconscious for you because it's 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 what you do and it's what you know but it's still, to me, it's still revelatory. Can you just explain that little piece of it first? Yeah, it's not inaccessible in the way that if we had something where it wasn't navigable with a keyboard, it's not inaccessible in that way, but it's just a best practice because basically you're forcing someone's computer, their browser, their screen reader to open something that they didn't necessarily like consent to. It shouldn't take over your window and do something else. Right. You know what I mean? Like you're opening a bunch of things. It shouldn't just, because imagine if you are using a screen reader and then you have like 15 windows open when it's just like, you just want to go through the website. So there are ways that you can notify the user. So in the code, have it say like open a new window, letting them know ahead of time. 
I don't really feel like it's necessary. If you're leaving to an external site page, like, yes, you have to use the back button. But for our internal site pages, I try to have, like, we have a home icon, which most websites don't because, you know, click the logo or, you know, just go to the, the footer. The home icon is there so you can always get back to home base without having to, like, use the back button or be confused when navigating. So subtle, so small. Some might look at it and be like, oh, that's a mistake. But everything on this site is extremely deliberate because it's meant to to be accessible to anybody and everybody that wants to come to the site and learn some information, which I which I love. So when we talk about those menu items and you go through the website, you can read about us and the show and why we put it together. You can click on the bookstore link and it takes you to the bookshop. And the bookshop has now, I don't know, how many books are in that? Probably about 100 of our own and then at least 60 unfucker recommendations, I'd say. I mean, and really quality, quality books that have been our sources, but also great recommendations that help fill the knowledge gaps that we have. Click on the coffee store and you go into this shopping environment where you can read about the coffee, see the coffee, see how much it costs. What does it cost to ship? You can place the order and then it shows up at your fucking doorstep. You can click the membership link and then you could become a member of the show and help support us financially and learn about all the things that come along with supporting us financially. You can click on the Substack to get all of our essays, which are all edited, by the way, after I post them by 99 and formatted so that it always looks great. It always looks consistent. It always has our sources and our resources and everything that's in it. Point being, I I write these scripts. I come in here and I perform the scripts and I'm all, I'm just all super excited and, and so proud of myself, but it doesn't fucking matter if you can't find it, you can't see it, you can't hear it. You can't go through it and find the resources. And there's a person, one fucking human being who is just so incredible at her job outside of being a really cool co-host that you can access all of these things. It is, to me, it's a marvel. It really is, it's it's truly miraculous. If you haven't gone to the site, I think it's one of the best podcast websites that exists, period, end of story, because it's all so thoughtful and so considered. And you you can see the love in every single tab that we have. So I just wanted to say, you really are the best at what you do. You are an incredible gift and a resource in in all of our lives as we build this community. And it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. These things just don't appear. So well done, kudos to you for being you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm not good at accepting compliments. Well, you should. So that's that, and you should accept the compliments. And, and I want unfuckers to go to unftr.com just to see the marvel that is 99. Now, the Clinton years episodes becoming more important to me than I even thought they would be when we started. As we told you before, it's in three parts, which is a first for us. Now, when we're on vacation, by the way, we're going to drop this as one episode. So we're working with Manny in the background to actually combine all three episodes without, you know, the kind of interruptions and the introductions that we have so that they're seamless chapters in case you wanted to share this with anybody or you wanted to go back and refer to it. You didn't have to, you know, go through three different episodes. And I think that's actually going to be a good auditory experience when we get that all done. The first episode reminder was the foundation episode, the the Clinton Foundation episode, where we 
We learned how deeply pathological the public-private partnership concept is to the Clinton family as evidenced by the mission and the direction of the Clinton Foundation. Then in part two, we went all the way back to the beginning. So we kind of bookended the story here, went back to the roots of how Clinton developed his philosophy and how it developed during his years as the Arkansas governor. And also how he influenced the platform of the new Democrats at the time. So remember, that was Al Gore and Dick Gephardt and Paul Songus and the people that were sort of creating the new right wing of the Democrats, which was the countervailing movement against the progressive wing characterized at that time by Jesse Jackson. So how Bill Clinton influenced the platform and helped the new Democrats of the Democratic Party surge the party to the right. So in part three, we're right there in the middle, looking at the 1990s, looking at Clinton's years in office, but also how his policies have negatively reverberated since that time. Now, as expected, we received a great deal of feedback on part two, especially as we predicted at the conclusion of the show, when Manny Faces really brought down the house, where he set up the conclusion of Jesse Jackson's convention speech in 1988 to music. And good Lord, I've listened to it so many times. I, I just can't get enough of the magic that Manny brings to the table. And that's the other part of this thing is all of the elements that you can interact with on the website. But then there's the audio design and the sound design itself. And I knew when I put it together and we were, we were going through some of the music options and I was listening to his speech for the content, but then I kept coming back to the conclusion of, of Jesse's speech. And in my mind's eye, I knew exactly what Manny could do. It was better than I even imagined it would be because he really is brilliant. Thank you. 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 Let's hear what the unfuckers had to say about part two. And we'll start with uh, emails. 99, what do we have? So Ziggy said, thank you for shining light on Jesse Jackson. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina in the 80s. You would think that man would be one of our most treasured native sons. Nah, we saved that distinction for Edwin fucking McCain. The conversation I remember surrounding Jackson growing up was one of a comically outdated caricature of the civil rights giants of the 60s who frequently used gripes from the black community to raise his own star. It was not until much later in my adult life that I began to see the man for the true populist and progressive juggernaut that he is. Thanks again for spotlighting his platform and speech. All I could say is, wow, powerful stuff. Now a little later, Ziggy said, it seems every 15 years or so, a truly progressive candidate comes around. Sanders, Jackson, McGovern, Henry Wallace. One that has been noticeably absent from the conversation is Ralph Nader. I'm really glad that Ziggy brought up Nader. At some point, we're, we're going to delve into the brief right-wing respite that was the Carter years, which is, to me, even more fascinating through a lens now 40 years on because Carter was a conservative guy. From a personal standpoint, he was a, he was a very devout religious man. He loved his wife dearly, was incredibly faithful. I mean, we know Carter today as kind of this kindly old man who continues to build houses for poor people and believes in his faith and and prayed for Donald Trump and, you know, to to just do better and be a better human being. And he's, he's just always kind of been around. Carter won the presidency because he was a badass motherfucker. On the campaign trail, 
This guy was hard as nails. In the Oval Office, he was almost a tyrant in the kindest way that you could possibly imagine. I don't know if Carter becomes Carter without Ralph Nader. So that might be a really bold, outrageous thing to say. But Ralph Nader was a giant in the 1970s. Ralph Nader was responsible for making Milton Friedman famous in sort of the the media ecosystem because Milton Friedman started, his star started to rise as a response and a reaction to Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader has been so much a part of the political public consciousness of this country for the better part of 50 years. It is surprising, Ziggy, I agree with you, that we don't talk about him more today. We've referenced his podcast before. We've said that it's it's worth listening to. It's amazing how sharp and on the ball he still is. I mean, you talk about progressive bona fides. Maybe nobody else at that level of public service other than Bernie Sanders has his level of credentials and progressive bona fides. So we're going to dig into Ralph Nader. He will be on our game plan at some point. So Ziggy, thank you for bringing him into the conversation. Now, Rodney Kay said, Max, I have to thank you for the second episode on the Clintons, but mainly for recognizing and honoring Reverend Jesse Jackson for the important role he played in our nation's history, largely ignored then and forgotten today because of his populist progressive message. The new white male meritocracy wasn't going to allow his messages to be heard. So Rodney, I alluded to this at the end of the episode in post-show musings, but I want to I want to bring it back here as well for anybody that doesn't, you know, kind of go through the end of the show. I was embarrassed in building the Clinton narrative and looking at the years coming up to it. Jesse Jackson wasn't on my content map at all. I mean, I really wasn't thinking about putting it together until I kept tripping over his name in Geismer's book, Left Behind. And then I started looking ahead to this part three that's coming up this weekend as I was pulling resources for that, because I like to I like to kind of thread the narrative through to make sure that I'm 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 keeping some consistency between the episodes. And I kept seeing Jackson's name again. So I was like, you know what? Let me revisit that moment in time. And that's where I got I dug into 88 because nobody thought that they were going to win in 88. So even if Jesse Jackson had prevailed in the primary, I don't think he was going to beat George H.W. Bush to become the president of the United States. But it kind of would have changed the calculus for the black politician in America had he prevailed over Dukakis at the time. And it would have brought progressive policies further to the, to the forefront at the time. But I don't think anybody had was under any illusions that he was going to win. But going back into that 88 campaign, it sticks with me now that 10 million votes to 7 million votes. I'm like, this guy got 7 million votes and that it was a horse race right down to the convention that in theory had the other four candidates who were still in the race at the time. Well, they weren't in the race at the time, but they had already gathered enough delegates. Had they thrown their delegates to Jesse Jackson and decided this was going to be a progressive year, we're going to lose anyway, so we better, why not put out the most progressive vision for the country possible and thrown it behind Jesse Jackson that maybe he could have even taken it at the convention. It's a fantasy. It never would have happened, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that it was a a race, I don't know why I wasn't more attuned to that. I was old enough. Now, I wasn't old enough to vote in that election. I was old enough to vote in the next election. I just missed the cusp there. But I was still conscious of it because it was in high school and it was around. 
you know, I almost want to go back 99 and look at the media clips at the time and how they spoke about Jackson, because you know how you go back and you look at an old television show from that era and you're like, holy shit, they said that on TV? Like, I can't fucking believe anybody got away with that. I have this sense that the media was really callous toward Jackson at the time, that they were very dismissive. As a matter of fact, you can even hear Tom Brokaw at the end of the clip that we have on on YouTube. Tom Brokaw comes on, which is, it's funny to hear a young Brokaw, you know, talking about the convention and the speech. So here he delivers this rousing speech. The place is going, but he has a standing ovation for minutes and minutes and minutes after this. The whole place has gone bananas. And Brokaw finally breaks in and is like, well, it's nothing we haven't heard from him before, right? On his stump speech. I'm kind of surprised actually that it, he just kind of regurgitated his old talking points. And I'm like, this place is on fucking fire right now. I mean, Brokaw was probably a, a young reporter covering the 68 convention when they almost literally burned the fucking building down and the whole nation was coming apart at the seams. And this guy united the entire convention center and they were on their fucking feet in applause. He's like, meh, meh, meh. They were so dismissive of this guy. And I, I, I wish I, I wish I could have seen it for what it was at the time. And I, I was so relieved to get some of this feedback, like what Rodney Kay is saying, because it sort of reminds me like, okay, so maybe I'm not crazy. Like maybe in a good part of this country, the media really did dismiss this guy. And he wasn't the, the juggernaut that he was in the South. I mean, it's not that hard to believe. It's not. <laughs> We're in 2022 and we've had one black president and probably won't have another one for a long time because that was enough for people. That was enough. So right. in 88, I doubt they were like, yay. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, maybe I should have even more tuned to it because of the, the media blackout on Bernie Sanders for so long. I mean, Bernie was filling rally after rally. after. I mean, selling out stadiums and, you know, Hillary would have a small you know, VFW hall and they'd be like, Hillary out on the campaign trail. And meanwhile, you know, he's, you know, Bernie's like filling Wembley. <laughs> They're like, meh, you know, but Bernie, it's just insane. So I know the media has the, the capability to do that. I just, I was very validated and vindicated, I think, uh, in my own mind that so many people were like, holy shit, I, I really, you know, didn't understand that either. Anyway, what did John R. have to say? So John sent a really thoughtful, long email. So here are a few snippets. So John said, 51-year-old Bernie primary voting me appreciated the Jesse Jackson DNC speech in ways contemporary teen me never could have. In 1988, I was still in high school, uh, NJROTC, thoroughly brainwashed by Cold War propaganda and viewed the Dems as too weak on defense. The first crack in my facade happened probably my senior year of high school, 88 and 89. I read the Associated Press Illustrated History of the Vietnam War, which was transformative for me, an objective assessment of that conflict from how it started, how it was fought, and how it concluded that utterly shattered the Reagan-era myth-making I'd been steeped in for years by that point. When 1992 rolled around, the rise of Pat Buchanan stared the shit out of me, and his culture war speech at the 92 RNC made me realize the religious right was taking over the GOP for good. And I said out loud to myself, fuck me, I guess I'm a Democrat now. Another thing that absolutely rocked my young political consciousness was the Rodney King beating, the acquittal of all those LAPD officers and the LA riots that erupted in the aftermath. The injustice of it all seared into my consciousness. 
I remember coming back home from Germany in the summer of 93, and my parents had the radio tuned to a program that was broadcasting excerpts from Rush Limbaugh and felt a gut-level wish to turn around and jump on the next plane headed back to Germany. I didn't, of course, but that's how visceral my disgust was. The 90s for me were my college and grad school years, and I remember a vicious Republican Party hell-bent on taking down the Clinton administration by any and all means at their disposal, especially after the Gingrich Revolution in 94. I was probably more defensive of the Clinton presidency in those years than I would be now, but that's because of the unrelenting siege tactics of the recalcitrant GOP. And then John closes off and says, FMF, fuck Ayn Rand, fuck, <laughs> fuck also the John Birch Society. I sometimes joke that QAnon are just birchers with broadband. Everything old is new again. What a brilliant email. There's so much good stuff here. And obviously I align with it because we're one year apart. Very similar upbringings and pivotal moments for us. I'm glad that he brought in a couple of the events because we're going to touch on them lightly in part three, but they were really important times. So how the nation responded, how government and police responded to the Rodney King fucking beatings. It was a horrible event that I think really helped shape opinions for a lot of us of that generation. Definitely talking about Newt Gingrich. What's interesting about Gingrich, this is something we can foreshadow for part three. Yes, Gingrich was a fucking asshole. And he was determined. He was the beginning of the fracture in Congress. He is definitely the reason why we cannot have nice things today. But I think the memory of that period is different than what was really going on because the memory was oh, Newt Gingrich a la Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan scuttled the agenda of a Democratic president. I'm not sure how much they scuttled the agenda because I think it was actually, in hindsight, a pretty convenient foil and allowed Clinton to push through the policies that he truly believed was going to make the nation successful and his legacy really stand out and convenient for him that the Republicans really looked like the bad guys to the Democrats at the time. So it was a way to coalesce the Democratic Party around the Republicans being fucking assholes. It definitely tore us apart because it took the it took the Republicans further right on social and cultural issues because it was their it was the cleanest and clearest way to distinguish themselves from the Democrats. But I really don't think that Clinton Honestly, if you look at his policies as Arkansas governor through the election and when he had full control of both the House and the Senate, I, I don't see much of a distinction between what he was able to do and what Gingrich wanted him to do. So this is a really great email. I appreciate this very much. Now, Sherman D said, I just finished listening to the Clinton years part two, and all I can say is, holy fuck. Oh, oh I, I actually saw this one come in. I fucking love this email. My name is Sherman Dreadnought. And I'm a binge fucker. Randomly started with dem bums and binged the entire catalog from the beginning. I'm a six foot four, 260 pound black atheist metalhead truck driver in Texas who's surrounded at work by MAGA chuds and Jesus freaks. I choose to be weird and I have to be tough around these assholes. Listening in my truck, Jackson's speech, which Manny fucking crushed, by the way. Made me cry like a fucking baby. Me too, Sherman. Jesse really could have changed the world, and I understand why the establishment was so afraid of him. I've branched out to other pods like Best of the Left and Pitchfork Economics, and it's been made clear that Manny Faces is the Sorcerer Supreme of sound design. You know, it's essentially custom to bow in the presence of the Sorcerer Supreme. Thank you for acknowledging that. Appreciate that. 
to the great 99. You might be a jam band mustard fucker who's never had a PB&J, but you're also tough as nails and unforgivably inclusive and willing to fight for the rights of all marginalized groups. I respect that. And you made me look at myself to see where I can improve. See what you do? Do you see what you do? You do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and finally, Maxo Captain, my captain, he says some really nice stuff about me and about my writing, which you know is the way to get to my heart. So thank you so much for writing that. We appreciate all your words. We appreciate that you came out of the darkness and revealed yourself, Sherman. You're officially an unfucker and doing the Lord's work down there in Texas, too. Beat him back. It's funny because I'm absolutely not tough as nails. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay I'm not, I'm not in any denial about my emotional states but you're yeah you are you are you're defiant you fight for what's what's right you really don't take any bullshit from people it gets to you right bullshit gets to you you're sensitive and you I think you feel more of the world than most people do and I think it definitely gets to you but you're also strong enough to, to reveal that and let that down. There's there's a strength in that as well, you know? That's true. Yeah. And you're not one to be fucked with. I really don't think that you're one to be fucked with. I just don't have the time for it anymore. Mm. Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. Fuck that, man. There you go. Okay. Well, right. thank you, Sherman. Very kind. David MJ said... A segment on Walmart seems like it would be a great addendum to the unfucking of Amazon. I feel like Walmart is the brick-and-mortar version of Amazon. And then also, a segment on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation feels like it would be a good follow-up to the current series on Clinton years and the sub-conversation about billionaires. There's some good crossover here, actually. Yeah, um, Epstein. <laughs> Bill Gates was a fucking defender. Is a defender of Epstein. No, I know. But Walmart, the headquarters, is in Arkansas. Hmm. So when we talk... I, Don Tyson was more directly involved in shaping and building Bill Clinton as candidate and then governor Bill Clinton and stayed with him as a funder through the rest of his life. So in terms of like like really molding and influencing somebody and having them do their bidding, Don Tyson from Tyson Foods was definitely more influential. But if you're in Arkansas, you cannot ignore Walmart. I mean, Walmart is the employer of record there, obviously, and the biggest employer in the country. So... That's definitely a significant part of the Clinton story. And it's funny because they're the Clintons to me are like the Walmarts of, of political you people. Mean the Waltons? No, the Walmarts. The they're Walmarts? like the Walmart okay. version of what we would want for, you know, politics. They're so just, who's the high end? Obama. <laughs> okay. Obama's Nordstrom. But they're both fucking taking money <laughs> out of your pocket and and getting it from fucking child labor. Wouldn't they be more like an Erewhon? Like the really fancy... What's Erewhon? Like the really fancy California grocery store instead, just instead of Nordstrom. Who, the Obamas? Yeah. Oh, sure. It's not one-to-one because -one. Walmart has food. Oh, yeah. Walmart's you know? everything now. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, wait, who is it? Or, er, or, Erewhon. Erewhon, the president? What? Hold on. I'm Googling it. Erewhon, California grocery store. Erewhon Market. It's called, it's E-R-E-W-H-O-N. It's like a really fancy, like... I don't know like, some of the high-end shit that you know, 99. No one can afford, but like nobody can afford to shop there. Like you have to be like a legitimate celebrity. So it was a wow. a local joke for, for our Californians. All right, our Cali fuckers will get that. Yeah. So that that's what the Obamas represent. I'm looking at how much things cost there. 
Broccoli, $2.99 per pound. That seems expensive. Organic celery bunch, $4. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for celery. Yeah. Organic fresh mixed berries are $12.49 per pound. George Bush would be, what is it, Cabela's? <laughs> That's like an outdoor shop. Yeah. <laughs> no, he'd be bass fish or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And what would, uh, <laughs> Trump would just be the entire McDonald's He'd chain. Be four season landscaping. <laughs> right. <laughs> I honestly didn't even, I was uh, like, oh, presidents who are alive. And he just didn't cross. It was gone. I've completely erased it. Okay. Can you fucking believe he was the president? No. Sometimes I do really it's think amazing. about it and I get sick. I was thinking about how Stern was like, I might have to run for president. And I was like thinking about the future. I mean, do I think he'd do a better job than Trump? Absolutely. Do I think celebrities should be our presidents? No. But I was thinking about a future where if I had to vote for Howard Stern, then having lived in the future where Howard Stern and Donald Trump <laughs> have been our presidents. And like, what a dystopian fucking nightmare. That's when I get super existential and like, really like, what does this all mean? Why is this all happening? And why did the Simpsons predict all of it? Yeah. That's what scares me the most. Kind of weird. They know something. They know something. Don't you think? Yes, I do. I do. I'm sure there's got to be podcasts out there on how much The Simpsons have predicted, right? Yeah, there, it's a lot. It's a it's a lot, a lot. Unfuckers, do you know if anybody's actually done that and committed that? I don't care for The Simpsons, but that's my personal preference. It's never my thing either. There's a Simpsons Because none ride. of my TV is actually tuned to Fox channels. <laughs> True. <laughs> there's a Simpsons ride at Universal Studios in Florida. Have you ever been on it? No. It's one of those augmented roller coasters where you're like, it's like a big screen. It tilts and, you know, it's very immersive. I went on it. It was like the last ride. Me and my friends had done a whole day at Universal. And we were cranky and angry and our feet hurt. My sneakers were like falling apart. And I've never been more angry than being on this fucking Simpsons roller coaster. It made me physically ill. And I don't like get sick on roller coasters, but it was so jerky and just terror. And it lasted like, tw I swear, 20 minutes. It was the worst the worst experience of my life. So it's also really soured me to The Simpsons because of it. A friend of mine who's a good deal older than me, very, very bright, and he's a serial contrarian. He was kind of influential for me for a few years when I was writing because he would he would literally write to me after every column that I did and challenge me on something, whether he believed it or not, just to try and make me better, which I really appreciated. And one of the things I was going off on, on Fox and Murdoch and... We were having lunch and he's like, yeah, and at the same time, it's a network that built and promoted and pays for and keeps the longest running, most subversive television show that was ever maybe allowed to air on TV. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, The Simpsons. And I, I never really thought about it that way, but The Simpsons are, it, it really is incredibly subversive. And the fact that it's a Fox product is amazing, but, but it's also a cartoon. And so I think that's enough of like escapism that it really doesn't have a demonstrable impact on, on people's lives. It doesn't have the same impact as a dude like Tucker Carlson going it on at night and just lying and lying and lying and lying. Yeah. Earnestly lying to you. And if you're just if you're just indoctrinated by that type of language, I don't think you can be as indoctrinated maybe by a cartoon. Maybe they're just psychologically it's just different. I don't know. I think South Park indoctrinated a whole generation of young men. <laughs> into hating Canada? <laughs> Just into a lot of stuff. Hating gingers, hating Kanye West. Is it not okay to hate gingers? I don't Help me. I think, I mean, 
it's not okay to hate anybody for oh, no reason. Okay. But, you know, I think a are lot of- Are there no reasons to hate gingers? I'm sure some gingers are bad people, <laughs> you know? I, honestly, off the top of my head, I can't name any that are actively bad people. Oh, wow. We should unfuck that. Why all the ginger hate? Do you think it's really because of South Park? I mean, yeah, that whole episode of it being a night walker or day walker. <laughs> day walker. Night walkers are, is that from Game of Thrones? I don't know. That's white walker. You know, I didn't watch uh, Game of Thrones. I didn't. I didn't finish it. I know that's controversial, but I didn't. I stopped enjoying it and not because I'm a purist and not because it was contrarian. I just stopped enjoying it and it was a lot of time to invest in something I didn't enjoy that much. That's how I, I felt respect. about Peaky Blinders. You were so into it like two weeks ago. No, I not two weeks ago, it but was. no, I was I was obsessed with Peaky Blinders just up to a couple months ago, and then I got through three seasons, and I was like, "Cool, I get it, I got it." Your I got blinders the, were peaked. You didn't need it anymore. Was peaked. It I was just peaked. finished watching Under the Banner of Heaven. Oh, the Krakauer? Yeah. Treatment? Really? Yeah. How is it? I liked it. Wait, when did that come out? Uh, I think it started airing in. May, maybe early May. Oh, it's a recent thing. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, the Where book is, is older, but uh, no, I have the I book. The book is was... ridiculous. It's amazing. Can I borrow it? Yeah, of course. Okay. I think it was on FX, but I watched it on Hulu, my roommate's Hulu that I don't pay for, remember? Right, right. But I, I think I just love, I love Andrew Garfield. He's so. He's in it? Yeah, he's oh, the shit. lead. They're going to kill him. <laughs> no, I don't think so. They're not like Scientology. The Mormons? Yeah. Okay. I don't think they're as, they're not going to, you know, uh, what do they call it? Murder? No. <laughs> fair game. Like fair gaming is like doxing. Like anything is fair game if we're trying to, what's the word? I'm trying to undermine you. I'm trying to, your character, assault, but Assail. like expose. There's a specific word I'm looking for, but yeah, I don't think they're going to do that. But I love, I love Andrew Garfield. I, his character is fictional, though, like not mm -hmm. in the book. Okay. They added some, a few characters. They changed some names for some reason. Uh, maybe just, I think some of them had the same name, like juniors. So it was just easier to keep track of them. There are a lot of good people in it. I love Andrew Garfield. And I was telling my mom about it and I was saying how much I loved him. And she was like, she was like, you just like him because he has a small head. And I was about to say, I love his little head. He has such a tiny head and I love it. Did you see? I know it's a, it's you're Jewish, so it's illegal to watch Mel Gibson movies. But the the war movie he did with no, him? absolutely not. Okay, I'm sorry. Wait, he was in that. Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge. That's so Hacksaw disappointing. Ridge? I don't think good. I knew that. I'm not gonna support him. I'm not gonna support him. I'm not gonna support Woody Allen. I get it. Absolutely not. I get it. But I love Andrew Garfield. If you're listening, call me. He might listen. He might. You never know. You never know. One famous person has probably listened to this at least once. Like statistically. I would like Mark Ruffalo. I think he'd to love to be this. an unfucker. He's a he's a good ally. He is. He is. Yeah. I met him once. Were you like when Mark Ruffalo? You know when he sees celebrities on the red carpet, he's like, "Were oh, that was that you?" Oh yeah, that that was definitely me. What era was this? Was this like thirteen going on thirty? Was this like Hulk one? No, oh, it was way before the Hulk. Is uh, it View from the Top? <laughs> I'm trying to think of when. This is probably 16 years ago. Yeah, that feels right. So that's like a little post 13 going on 30. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Did you say Maddie? That's his name, no. 13 going on 30. No, but it, so <laughs> I knew him 
more as like an advocate than an actor. I don't know Even that sounds, then? Yeah, I know That's that surprising. sounds really weird, but yeah. Anyway, uh, we have to talk about this. This is important. Jen S., Stifler's mama, you know, is a very big supporter of the show and working alongside Knutson and Nettie and uh, a lot of the unfuckers that have gathered in the unfuckers at all group on Facebook. Now, Jen S. has been out there on the street really, really ramping up her activist game and getting involved with progressive candidates in Colorado. She has sent us a few that we want to read out here. I looked briefly into each one of them. They appear to have all of the requisite bona fides, again, of a progressive candidate. Jen is imploring us as unfuckers to get behind them. If you are in Colorado and you have the ability to vote for any of them, here are three candidates and then a fourth that we'll talk about in a second, but three candidates, Colton Montgomery. Colton is running for Colorado State House District 21. Alvin Sexton running for District 15 in Colorado Springs. Rob Rogers. Rob is currently running for House District 14. So we've got 14, 15, and 21. These are local Colorado races. If you have the ability to support them and certainly have the ability to vote for them, please do get involved. Now, the other candidate is David Torres. David Torres has followed us now. He has been listening. He is connected with Jen and a number of the other unfuckers at this point. David is really Jen's pick here. And I, I want to make sure that we are all getting behind it. So this is a congressional race. David is a is definitely progressive. We talked about him in show notes a, a couple show notes ago. He's in for all of the things that are important to us on fuckers, and it would be great to add another member to the Progressive Caucus. So David Torres for number four, congress.com is his website. If you have the ability to support David and his efforts, that would be great. At a minimum, become friends with him on Facebook, share his tweets, get out there, get active, get involved in sharing some of his stances, and uh, hopefully he can cross the finish line and become a congressperson. So good luck, David. We'll be following you. We'll be watching. And uh, with that, Jen S., also thank you for your continued advocacy and support of this show and all things progressive. Now, what did Laura B. have to say? Laura said, Michigan 11 Dem primary race is getting so intense. I think corporate Democrat Haley Stevens may eke out a win. APAC is going bananas here and it's sinking in. I'll try to write better, but check out the race. Andy Levin, we need him for Congress. We can't lose him for another problem solver. Yeah, again, remember, fuck the problem solvers, fuck the Gottheimer wing of the Democrats. At some point, we will unfuck APAC. I promise to get to that. Uh, we won't get into it now. But so again, that's Andy Levin in the Michigan 11 Democratic primary, taking on corporate Democrat and problem solver Haley Stevens. Let's go, Andy. So Jason S. called me out said in show notes, Clinton part one, your response to Matthew's email about woke racism was the first thing in all of UNFTR that felt like fingernails on a chalkboard. Max, quote, racism is a reflection of structural imbalance. You cannot be racist towards somebody or a group that is more powerful than you. When you hold all the keys, you can't be discriminated against in a racist way. Racism is more about power, end quote. This is meta. That's him quoting me and me reading out my quote. There you go. 
Though I wholeheartedly agree with this sentiment, I think it's crucial to draw a distinction between structural systemic racism and racism as a general term. Just because racism and structural imbalances have nearly 100% correlation does not make them interchangeable terms. While arguments could be made that there are power imbalances in both of these examples, they are slight. I'm not sure what the right language is. I just felt that the umbrella term racism should remain for any prejudice based on race, and we need to work on our lexicon around systemic racism, discrimination, and power imbalance. Well, I'm going to go right into uh, Matthew's sentiments, who wrote back in to actually clarify his positions because we had asked him to, and I really appreciate him taking the time to do that. So these two emails are related. Matthew said, I am born and raised white Southerner, non-college educated. Forgive me if my thoughts do not necessarily translate well to this message in writing. I much appreciate an invitation to elaborate on what I meant. Gives a quote to kind of start things off. Quote, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. That is actually a very famous quote and I can't remember who it's attributed to, so I gotta go look that up, but... He continues with, I am left. I want progressive policies enacted. I am white. I am Southern. I am straight. I am male. I am not college educated. This is the demographic who you want to wake up and have on your side, right? Right. Okay, I am. But the power structure wants me to be a crazy right winger. How do they do that? If I were in charge of the PSYOPs, I would infiltrate the left with bots on social media and remind them how bad white people are. It's working on folks like me that are just tired of hearing how everything is my fault, even though I donate, I march, I educate myself, doing all the things that a good little white boy is supposed to do, but still. So that's what I'm trying to say, that the left is fracturing itself with its own beliefs. I just want you to think for a second that, hey, maybe having an opposite effect of what I want. I'm personally looking for results in the progressive movement, not points. Please be open to the perspective of a demographic that not often shares your beliefs. I'm telling you that the left is starting to push people like me away when the opposite should be happening. So that's why I say these two are related. So we're talking about, again, racism, systemic racism, structural racism, prejudice, bias, and then this idea that the right has kind of been propagating that originally started on the left, that we need to take on the white male patriarchy and its power structure if we're going to make any sort of real systemic changes. There's obviously a whole lot to unpack underneath that, but let me start with Jason's comments first. I do believe that I'm getting the language right, Jason. And I do promise also that I will delve further in it to, to ensure that I am. Now, again, racism to me, I believe is more structural and about power. What we're identifying, what you're identifying is just prejudice. And I don't think we need new words for it. We just need to understand better the intent of the words behind it. So a prejudice against a person who is different by race, color, ethnicity, background, hair length, uh, attitude, job, money, whatever it is. It is a prejudice and a bias that one person or one group of people might possess about that other group. In our society here in the United States, I don't think that you can say that quote-unquote reverse racism exists, and that's why I make the distinction between prejudice and bias and actual racism. That racism, by definition, isn't just about race, because again, re remember, race is a construct. 
There is no such thing as race. There is ethnicity. There is uh, background. There is perception of how you present in the world as, as what color you are and how, how dark or light-skinned you are. But race is actually not a thing. There's no such thing as a race. So racism can't be anything other than something that is systemic, institutional, or manufactured. The manufactured element of racism is prejudice with power. So that is, as far as I understand it and have learned over the years, that is the actual definition of racism, that a black person in American society cannot technically be racist toward white people. They can be prejudiced. They can be biased. They can carry hate in their hearts. They can have all of those things that are very real, very tangible, and also destructive. But they cannot be racist because there is a structural power imbalance between the two ethnicities and how they present in the world in the United States. So again, we can unpack that more, and I think it's a very valuable discussion to continue to have because as we've said over and over on the show, language truly does matter. And we have to have a shared language if we're going to understand one another. So now that does bridge me over to Matthew's comments that as a straight white American male in a position of power and influence, even though I do have a college degree in education, I'm sitting here in the same boat as Matthew. And I take the criticism of white men a little bit differently than Matthew, because I believe that I am in a position of power and privilege to be able to accept it, respond to it. And I have a platform. So I've never given myself this platform, but it's a platform nevertheless. In my work life, in my daily life, I am the boss. So I have a position of power and a platform. And with that, I take a responsibility to accept this criticism writ large of the world and anything that might be perceived as me acting upon my power dynamic as a white male in this country as it might suppress somebody. That's why I have people like 99 in my work life who are able to check my privilege along the way and say, hey, you might want to look at this differently, think about this differently, say this differently, because this is how it feels on the other side of the equation. Now, if you are not in possession of a power, of power within the structural world, if you are what Matthew is alluding to, like, hey, here I am, I'm on your side and and I'm not with them, but I keep getting painted with the white brush. The first thing is let me say that I see you and I understand where you're coming from and I'm acknowledging my own privilege that I have a position of power within my family, within my business, and now giving myself this microphone and platform that maybe others do not. With that, there's an imbalance of power in how I am perceived and how my words are perceived in the world. If you are a straight white male who aligns with progressive visions and fights for progressive issues, but you don't hold any power that you perceive over the system, other people, economics, social, class, race, any of the the things that, that are important to a society, you may feel just totally put upon. But it's still important to recognize that when you walk through the world, you do walk through with privilege. Here, here in the United States, here, maybe in other parts of the country, but we're not in the world, but we're not talking about other parts of the world. Just your whiteness and your maleness alone 
means you walk through this world and our culture with a degree of privilege. You may be tired of hearing that, but it's a lesson that we all need to learn until we get to the point where women, women of color, where people with disabilities, people who present differently in the world, whether it's a gender presenting, how they are perceived in terms of their, their jobs, what they do for a living. And now again, I'm thinking about like teachers to sex workers. Like we, we have all these layers and forms of judgment in our country that add to a perception of power and how we get to walk through the world. Until we get to a point where we have so wholly realigned the power structure of this country as it might be in others, we are going to maintain this set of privileged positions that will allow us to take advantage of other people. And that's all I'm saying about it. Does it feel like a lot to you? I can see why it would. And I completely empathize with that position. And still, it's a hell of a lot easier to walk through the world looking like you, looking like me, than it is for more than half of this country, I'm going to say probably 70% of this country. Yeah, I think a big distinction to make is that no one is questioning that you, you know, fought for what you have, that you earn what you have, that even if you grew up impoverished, if you grew up on your own, if you grew up, you know, all these different, all these different factors that might have been struggles in your life, your privilege it doesn't devalue that. And that's not what people are saying. I think a lot of times, and I've had this conversation where it's like, I'm not privileged. Like I grew up poor. And, and it's like, it's not that type of privilege. There is that silver spoon privilege, obviously, that's so prevalent in our government, just in the world, in opportunities that are presented. But there is just this thin layer where even if you're talking about like, let's say the most quote unquote menial job where you as a white man and maybe a black woman who to a white hire says, well, you know, like just internal prejudices and biases, like you say. So that small amount of privilege doesn't mean you didn't fight or earn what you have. That's that's the key difference. And I think it's just like understanding. I think almost if we had a better word for it, because I think privilege has its own connotation. Mm -hmm. But that's what the word is. That's what it means. So it's not disparaging to you. Doesn't mean you didn't earn anything. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. You can't help it. Now, where, where, what he's hitting on that has a lot of merit is how the right will co-opt a lot of these terms that the, the left is working through and, and then immediately change them. We were talking about it last week, how the term woke really worked for a while because it was like, wow, I really am waking from a slumber and I'm beginning to see things differently. And then it immediately got a negative connotation because the right wing media beat it and beat it into the ground privilege is another one like you just alluded to like that is now beginning to take on this negative connotation of where people are always feeling attacked and I think that gets to the core of what Matthew's saying is like almost where Martin Luther King Jr. got to at the end of his career what Jesse Jackson was trying to 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 lift up and then carry forward in our politics like you can acknowledge that all of these things exist structural racism impediments to moving ahead upward mobility classism and all these kind of things. But at the root, what we need to fix before we can address any of those things is issues of poverty. Because when people are allowed to rise through the system, 
and get agency in their own lives and their own work lives and put bread on the table and all of those things, it's very difficult to have these other conversations. So where I where I agree 1000% with Matthew is that we are allowing ourselves to lose the culture wars by trying to over explain things that are uncomfortable enough to a segment of the population where they're like, I just want to focus on what the fuck I need to do tomorrow and stop attacking me. We do need white, straight male allies in our fight, A, because they do, we do hold the power and we need to relinquish some of it. That's how this works. But also because they're also human beings that need to be enlisted in the fight for a more equitable society. So I un I do understand that every time the left takes the bait, it does continue the conversation like that. And what the right wing wants is for us to continue the conversation, because the more we're talking about this stuff, the further away we're getting from being able to alleviate poverty in this country. This is the ultimate yes and. It's like, yes and, Matthew, I want to make sure like you and Jason, that we're all using the same language so that it becomes inculcated into our discourse and we can use shorthand about it and fucking move on and get to the business of equity, gender equity, gender parity, acceptance for all, and mobility for anybody who can come through the system to put fucking food on the table and have a better life. Matthew, thank you for writing back in, for continuing the dialogue, for clarifying your position. And I hope you feel like you, I, I hope it comes through that, that this is a yes and. It's like, yeah, definitely not attacking you and agree that the longer the conversation goes and the more that people feel under attack, I don't care how much power you have. If you feel under attack, you get your back up and you're automatically begin to think the other way and be like, all right, well, fuck it. Well, I guess nobody wants my help. I totally understand it. Yeah. But we can do this together. Yeah. And just know that. If we're being honest, we're probably not going to stop talking about white men who hold power and do bad things because there are a lot of them. So but just that's where know, power is. Yeah, just know that if we're saying, if I say white men should, over 75 should die, I'm obviously A, joking, mm -hmm. sort of. No, I'm joking. But B, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about the people who are fighting the fight. White women are terrible allies sometimes. White feminism is a huge problem. Things only matter if they happen to white women. When people talk about white feminism, I'm not offended because I recognize that it's an issue, but I also can say I'm trying my hardest to not be those people. So just remember that the next time we do say like, it is the white male class that is holding this issue. Like, that's what we mean. It's right. not you. It's not right. the people fighting the fight. Always know that. Also, the quote was from LBJ. I looked it up. Was it really? That's what that I said. That was LBJ? Mm-hmm. Ah, excellent. LBJ. LBJ. L LBJ. LBJ. <laughs> and yeah, on that So in note, Spain, that would have a totally different connotation. Oh, well, I don't think it would I be. I would like LBJ, please. Be, I don't remember what J is in Spanish. A, B, C, D, E, F, A. That's where I end. You're five years of Spanish. A, B, C, D, E, F, A, H, H, E, J, Man, totally gone. Yeah, I know. It's weird. Okay, this is actually another really good building block point from Jason to Matthew to one of uh, the oldest friends of our show, Embusto. So, Embusto wrote in. 
So where you lose me is that bashing Biden at such a critical time bothers me. I guess I'm not as progressive as you both are. I admittedly am still getting my legs when it comes to understanding politics and what the different parties represent. However, I bristle every time you bash Biden, either jokingly or otherwise. So this is my request to you both, and that is truly ask yourself, what is the long-term goal of your podcast? Because if it is that you want more material to rail against, then you will have it when Trump or worse, a more intelligent version of him as our president come 2024. Please play the long game here on what your podcast is here to do. I am new to calling myself a progressive, so maybe this fact that I'm also sensitive to bashing President Biden in any form right now. Granted, all of our politicians should be held to account, but doing so in a way that does not give your audience a reason to not vote or worse, to vote Republican. M. Busto brings the heat. M. Busto doesn't write in all the time, but when I do, it is important. We should be talking about this more, actually, and we and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to clarify our position on this. Embustada, embusto. I think it is fair to be critical of President Biden and not shy away as we always do from being critical of a Democrat in power just because we're afraid of losing power. And also recognize that the midterms right now is about packing progressives as much as we can to further the mission in the caucus. It is not a fait accompli that we lose power, by the way, because there's there's some math that shows that we may improve our position in the Senate. So Biden's not running. That that's that's number one. This isn't Biden, and we have to speak loudly, clearly, and often that midterms are perceived mostly as a rebuke of the quote administration. And I get that, and that is historically true, but it's not always true. So sometimes it is a reflection of where we are on the ground in a moment in time in history and what we want, and it's a projection maybe going forward. I think it's fair that the midterms should be, can and should be seen as a projection of what we want in the next presidential election as a path to get there, not as a reflection of what is happening right now, today. So what do I mean by that? You can admit that Biden is a bad president and also be hopeful that the Democrats get their shit together by including more progressives in the conversation so that we are more prepared the next time and that we can all kind of have an honest conversation that Biden shouldn't run again because he is not in charge of all his fucking mental faculties. This is an okay conversation to have. He's our president. We're the voters. We're the ones with the power, right? So all of these things can be true at once. It does not have to be, oh, Biden's a terrible president, so we should get rid of Congress. They're two separate fucking things, right? So both of these conversations are okay. Now, Biden is demonstrably a very bad president. Here's why. First of all, look at his most recent trip as of this recording, was to go to Saudi Arabia and wag his finger at Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Khashoggi, but also make sure that we can continue our relationship to sell weapons to the Saudis so that they can fight our proxy wars in the Middle East. And when he returned, MBS mocked him for caring about 
an American journalist more than our relationship with his country. He fucking mocked Biden on the way back. And you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to change? Nothing. Because they have all the power dynamic in that relationship. Why? That's fucking insane. Build Back Better was killed by his own party, but he considered himself the deal maker. He came through the Senate with Joe Manchin. You know, he made deals with him just like he's made deals with segregationalists in the past. Joe Biden as a senator was so fucking toxic and conservative and considered crazy and racist that he was never considered to run in the 90s and 2000s. Obama tapped him because he was a a kinder, gentler, mellower guy that could twist arms in the Senate, not make friends in the Senate, but twist arms if need be. Okay, Biden has been an asshole his whole fucking life. The fact of the matter is, he's a good family man. He's a lovely guy if you're on his side, right? But he's not he's not the guy that should be leading the country and he never should have been. So I can't accept this whole idea that that we just need to bite our tongues and and sort of gnash our teeth at like, "Oh god, this is this is a horrible situation." But, you know, he's the least worst option. So when you ask me what the long-term goal of this podcast is, the long-term goal of this podcast isn't to just codify the least worst options in the country and say, let's do that. It's to do better and to teach people that these things aren't always correlated. You can have a bad president and build a foundation for the core of the progressive movement so that we're in a position to take over in a couple of years. Likewise, Listen, a lot of people thought Obama was a good president. I'm not one of them, but a lot of people thought that he was an amazing president, right? He's an amazing president who didn't develop a bench. That's why we came out of the, the Obama years with zero momentum because there was nobody on the ground willing to fight for anything important because all of the important progressive initiatives were were swept under the rug from minute one, right? So what we're shooting for, the long-term answer about what we're shooting for in this podcast is to develop the language of progressivism that we can all speak fluently to understand where shit went wrong and then what it's going to take to ultimately fix it so we can begin to row the boat in the same fucking direction. Biden is not my choice, and I voted for him because he was the last choice standing against Donald Trump. But that doesn't mean that he has my fucking seal of approval across the board. The climate initiative that Joe Manchin promised, told the whole party, listen, can't vote for Build Back Better. And and so don't pair the two together with infrastructure. But I promise you, here's what I'm willing to do. And it has to do with raising taxes on wealthy people by changing the calculus on the on pass through income, right, for for corporations. And we're going to raise the top level corporate tax and we'll do all these other things. Fine, I got it. And it's got to be packaged with these. These are the acceptable climate initiatives that I'll do. So Joe Manchin actually built out from the from scratch a proposal that he said would be acceptable to him, to the voters of West Virginia and, and would be passable. So don't include it in Build Back Better, please. Include it now. And Joe Biden fucking hook, line, and sinker like Charlie Brown kicking Lucy's football said, okay, that sounds good, Joe Manchin. Thanks for building a package for us that's going to be able to pass. And then it came time and Joe Manchin's like, nah, I'm lying. I was always fucking lying. 
And that's the problem with Joe Biden. Do you really think that an LBJ would have accepted a guy like Joe fucking Manchin? Like taking him to the finish line and 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 leaving him at, at the fucking altar for every provision that was included in the great society. When FDR was having a problem with the courts, he's like, that's fine. I'll just go get five more fucking justices and fuck you. When FDR was having a problem with the Senate, he fucking browbeat them until he got what he fucking needed and forced the country in a direction because that's what a leader does. Anybody that thought that that was going to be fucking Joe Biden never looked at what Joe Biden has ever accomplished ever, except for his signature crime bill in the fucking 90s that we're going to talk about in part three. And I'm getting amped. And I should I should dial it down because I'm not actually angry at M. Bustama's comment at all. I'm just angry that we're in this fucking situation when you got a, a person like Bernie Sanders who was in the wings and ready for power and ready to go. So, no, Biden is not the party and the Democrats are not the progressives. Our job is to make the progressives the Democrats. That's what our job is. Our job is to is to take over that party leverage and use their infrastructure to get the person we actually need at the top of the ticket because it ain't going to be Joe Biden again. It can't be. It literally can't be. Not just because he doesn't know how to dismount the bike, but because he doesn't really understand what's going on on the ground, the suffering that people are going through and what's happening with foreign policy. This fucking pivot to Asia bullshit. I mean, nothing that this guy is doing makes any fucking sense. And they don't do anything with a sense of urgency, right? We talked about the oil, the the the, the drilling rights in protected parts of federal lands, right? We're not going to do that. And we're going to make the fossil fuel companies pay. And then as soon as he got into office, he's like, have at it. Drill wherever the fuck you want because gas prices are high. Even the fucking idea that he was going to get a holiday on the gas tax. He's like, that's a good idea, right? And everybody's like, that's a terrible idea. He's like, okay, moving on. He sticks with nothing. He gets nothing done. He doesn't push one successful policy through. All we got was the fucking same stimulus package in the beginning of, of his tenure that was written up when he was running and that Trump passed a year earlier. It's the same fucking bill. In the infrastructure bill, we already talked about that. That was about a quarter of what we needed. It was the fucking minimum. So no, he's not good. So I can't abide nice, kindly talk about Joe Biden, who just shook hands with a dictator and wagged his finger for killing an American journalist. And, and then out of the side of his mouth was like, but you're still going to buy weapons from us, right? Fuck that. Fuck this guy. He's not the Democrat that we need. He's not even the really the guy we wanted. The other guy we wanted less than this guy. That's really how this fucking guy got to where he is, right? And he's too old. He can't fucking think straight. He can't fucking, you know, clear a message straight. He mispronounces everybody's names around him. He forgets stuff all the time. He's losing his fucking mind. And you want him again? No. The answer is no. Sorry. Sammy said yelling at me. Well, I wanted to say <laughs> I was I was thinking when you were talking about and reading an article and listening at the same time, you know, multitasking about how the image of Biden being the loving family man and all of this and thinking about like this saccharine image we give to politicians these days 
So if you're in the weeds, if you know about the issues, if you're following, then you you know the truth. But a lot of people don't. They just surface level and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, some people don't have the time. Some people just don't care enough to know. I mean, they should. I'm going back to when I all I knew about Obama was like, oh, he's a great dad and that's nice. And thinking about this and so Parks and Recreation is like one of my favorite shows. But I, on my last rewatch, which I hadn't watched it in its entirety really since doing the show, I realized how much of a fucking shill the show became for the government. You know, if seasons one through three, four were like quirky local town, you know, bureaucracy with dumb idiots, relatable to anywhere, relatable if you're on a PTA, it's relatable for student fucking senators. Like we all see this dumb bullshit. But then all of a sudden, Leslie starts getting a little higher. And then all these politicians start appearing. And, you know, she previously she'd talk about strong women and she'd say that. But then it was like really hammer in there. Like the amount of people who were on in the last season. I mean, Biden was on twice. His wife was on. John McCain was on. Madeleine Albright was on. Orrin, Orrin Hatch, I said. Cory Booker was on. Michelle Obama was on. All these people. And we're just clapping. Newt Gingrich was on. And then I just Googled, I wondered, like, how many other shows, like, where else was this prevalent? You know, SNL. They were all on SNL. Elizabeth Warren was on SNL. And, I mean, even my punch-in from last week was from Between Two Ferns. Hillary did that. Obama did that. And and some of these on here are fucking crazy. I remember when crazy. Michelle Obama was on iCarly. And yes. my kids were like, who's that? That's in like, here, her fucking yeah. dance break. Oh, when Hillary Clinton was on Broad City. It was so nauseating. It was so cringy to watch and I was so disappointed in Alana and Abby who I admire and I respect and I think they're brilliant but I was like come on but they were doing what we're ha- come on <laughs> what is that How, can you come on yeah. <laughs> come on man <laughs> yeah they were doing what we were talking about they were they were choosing the least bad option well they could have gone Bernie but I th- maybe at that point it was you know too far but like some of this shit on here on this I'm, I'll link it in show notes This it's an insider article but like Warren appeared on a weird Amazon satirical web series and Hillary Clinton was on the premiere of the reboot of Murphy Brown. Like what? Why? Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright and Colin Powell showed up on Madam Secretary. Obama was on SNL. Michelle Obama was on NCIS. The fuck is that? (laughs) But there was one that went all the way back to the 80s. Rudy Giuliani was in Seinfeld. I didn't know that one. Uh, Bloomberg was on The Good Wife. Al Gore was on 30 Rock, which is funny. I think I like that one. It was a, he played an environmentally conscious janitor. That's funny. Madeline Albright was in Gilmore Girls. Why? 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 And then Chris Christie was on the Michael J. Fox show. Okay. Nancy Reagan was on Different Strokes in the 80s. That I remember. That I didn't know, because obviously yes. I wasn't alive then. In her just say no phase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Mur- uh, Newt Gingrich was on Murphy Brown in 96. So it's like, what the fuck? Oh, John Kerry was in Cheers? Like, this has been going on for years. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. we all we're seeing is these politicians are just like us. They put their pants on one leg at a time. Look, they're funny. It's so funny that Obama took time out to be on SNL. Isn't that funny? What a good guy. He's got a great sense of humor. Yeah. And that's all, especially in like a media. They push push it to normalize. Yeah. In a media generation where all we get is bite-sized clips on social or on Twitter, it does something. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying I'm not party to this. Even the news shows, right? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen it 
where Obama was interviewed and somebody said to him, hey, why did you prosecute journalists under the Espionage Act? Why did you invoke the Espionage Act more than every single president combined? Why'd you do that? Why'd you do that to your own journalists? Why did you assassinate an American citizen abroad without consulting uh, Congress? Why did you drop drones on nine countries that we weren't at war with without an act of war from Congress? Right? Nobody asked those questions. No. And anybody that did, I remember very distinctly when Cornell West was was fighting with Tanisi Coates and he was fighting with a number of other uh, prominent black intellects in this country because he refused to give Obama a pass. And people were so mad. I mean, he was really ostracized in that community that had embraced him for so long. I mean, he's one of the original pragmatists in the country and, 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 and an actual realist and a true progressive who was ostracized because he, he was critical of the man and the policy and for not giving him a pass. So you see it at every layer and every level. Yeah. And with Joe Biden, I mean... Joe Byron. With Joe Byron. What do you want to tell Joe Byron right now? What's up, baby? Take me out the day. Hey, yo. With Joe Biden, Obama really did rehabilitate his career in a way that uh, was, was so fucking probable by making him a vice president and keeping him kind of enough out of this scrum where he could have, you know, fucked things up. And Biden was a very useful cudgel in the Senate for him to be able to, to browbeat people in it. But you used a great word before, this sort of saccharine vision that we have of these politicians and old timey Joe and his- Trains. His tra he has a wonderful relationship with his wife and he has a tragic history. And I feel horrible that he lost his son and all of those things that humanize him. But I remember, I think we, we said it before, I was listening to Jeremy Scahill on Intercepted go through Biden's career leading up to it, like trying to really figure out like, well, who is this man? Who is this per this human? And forget about what type of president he's going to be policy wise. Like what's he bringing to this job from a personality standpoint? And his conclusion was, I bet he's one of the best fucking people in the world if he's your friend. Like the guy remembers your name, he calls on birthdays, he fucking goes out of his way, he'll sit with you all day and he knows, you know, he knows your mom's name and your kids' names and he sends presents and he's thoughtful and he checks in and if you're like on Biden's side, he's probably fucking amazing. Now, if you're a black person in the global south, you're fucked. You are legitimately fucked. He has zero fucks to give about anybody that is not in his purview in through his lens as a leader, as an American. And, and okay, so Trump said the quiet part out loud by saying America first and invoking a white supremacist phrase from early on, America first. That was a, that was a supremacist phrase. But Biden is America first, just as much if not more than a Donald Trump. But we can't see it. So I no, I won't give him a pass just because it might jeopardize the midterms because they're two separate things. Yeah. We're not voting for Joe Biden to, to be in Congress. Yeah. We're voting for the Congress that we want in power when when the next presidential election comes. That's what we want. Yeah. I know I know we're we're prolonging this, but there was one thing that you said that made me think maybe we can move on after, but you know, you said people who sit down with Obama, they never ask those questions. They never said, Why'd you do this? And because they didn't ask those questions, 
we're here today. Because if someone asked Obama those questions now, we probably would have, maybe maybe we would have had Hillary, maybe we would have had Bernie, maybe he would have gotten the, the nomination this time around. Like, things could have been so different. So if we rest on our laurels and continue to just say, well, it's what we have, and not ask the questions of why are you doing this, we're never going to move forward. Mm -hmm. So we have to have these conversations and bring it to light. And we will do what we have to do at the end of the day. Like we, when we voted for, for our governor, like we, we picked our pick. He didn't win the primary. Now we know who we're going to have to vote for, even though we don't want her. But we'll do it because right. we know what has to happen. We have to fight until that happens. And hopefully eventually it comes to a point and, you know, it crests and we can move forward and we can move above this. But we can't we can't not. Yeah, like establishment Democrats w would see losing to progressives in a primary as as a defeat. Whereas progressives, you know, if they lose it, they're like, all right, we gave it a shot. We're going to vote with, for the Democrat. But they paint the they paint it as the opposite. They paint it as the the Bernie or bust crowd. It's not that way. It's just not that way. And yeah, there will there will be some people, you know, I think some Bernie people did go Gary Johnson. And what is Aleppo? <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know, man. Well, listen, Sammy wants to know if we're ever going to give consideration to some FMF socks. But Sam's got a really good reason for it. Because maybe with Uncle Fuckstick's ugly mug on the sole, we can crush him into oblivion with every step. I like that. I do, too. I'll have to look into to that. I like it, too. And then unrelated <laughs> to any of this, some lighthearted <laughs> but also nightmare fuel. Allie Kay said that she is with me and doesn't like bugs in the toilet because one time there were ants on the toilet and she didn't realize and they were crawling around on her. Yeah, when she was three ninety nine. okay? Not a grown-ass woman. And? Who thinks that a centipede is going to crawl into her butthole. There was an, there, I, I killed two more. I understand why Allie's irrational. I killed two more. What's going on in your apartment? I think it's just the summer. I don't like them. What would you prefer? It has to be one or the other. Centipede in the toilet or... Stink bugs all over the shower when you get in. What's that, worse? Well, you said multiple, so obviously I have to go with the one. You'd prefer the uh, to deal with one centipede than five stink bugs. Have you ever seen a stink bug? Yes, many they times. They don't fly. No, they they don't. jump and hover at you. Yeah, they do. And that is so unsettling. They don't have wings. I don't know what, they, I mean, they do, but I, they don't. There was mm -hmm. one in my room, and every time I tried to get up and change, it came down at me like it was trying to fucking attack me. It was really, it was really bad. I had a full blown. Did you examine your behavior in that moment? Do you think that maybe you were being. Was I asking for it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I wasn't, I was trying to get dressed. So what was I wearing? Right. I was, it was like one in the morning. I lived in a single room in college in one of my semesters and I saw it. It was like someone dumped a bucket of water on me. I was just drenched in sweat, hyperventilating. And I called my parents like who are like eight hours away and they're like what do you want me to do by the way what are we going to do with bobby mcdee's fan fiction i don't know bobby mcdee wrote a story about the centipede in the toilet fucking amazing my favorite line i told him he said i in the in the story i call manny for help like it said like the background was filled with the the noises of children hundreds of them <laughs> <laughs> and that's like for some reason just that made me laugh the hardest oh, like <laughs> i just don't know I've said he it got before. Manny's voice down so well too. I've said it before. Like I, I mean, we crank out. I use something like five or six thousand words a week, and that's a lot of fucking writing. 
but fiction? Like I'm writing the facts and shit that happened and then interpreting yeah, it, and I could do quotes. this all day long, but like fucking, like he just sat down, he took a centipede in your butt and and turned it in. I mean, it was long. Full disclosure, it was, it was not in my butt, just in real life. I, I just want people to know that. It's true, it's true. But I, I don't know, I just love Bobby. I love fiction. I love I love all the artists in our unfucking community that just whip this stuff out and it's just good stuff. Yeah, anyway. with permission, we can put it on the site. Okay. All right, Bobby, we have your permission. Nobody made it this far into the episode. We've been talking for like hours, right? 90 minutes. 90 minutes, good Lord. Well, on Twitter, oh boy, uh, Clitoris said, Oh my God. I know you, what? <laughs> that was no? That was worse than I let ever me, thought. Let me put my glasses on. Oh, Ceritabus Orbis. I think it's Ceritus Orbis. Said, I know you all played it for last, but I wouldn't mind if Hillary actually dealt with Newt. That's right. Uh, seems like a sound policy decision that she should have done back in the 90s. That was our skit where Hillary uh, is serving Bill lunch. And uh, what does she say? I have Newt. And he yeah. says, not your potions again. And she says, no, no. literally. <laughs> Newt's eye. I took it. And then Gatapang said, I came to the U.S. in 92. And my impression of Jesse Jackson was a some form of political sideshow. Over the years culminating Clinton part two episode, I've learned how wrong I was. Thanks for all you do. And Little 197 said, Clinton years episodes are incredibly well done. I remember requesting that you cover Clinton maybe a year ago. This really exceeds my expectations. I think it's your best and most important work to date. That means a great deal to me. Thank you for that. And yes, it does take me a while sometimes <laughs> to wrap my head. But in. it gets there. Yeah, we get there. It's proof. That's right. It's Hudak said, that Jesse Jackson speech left me in tears. I was born in 87 and had no idea of him as a political figure. If his words were genuine and he was somehow able to get any of those things to pass, we'd be in a totally different world. True that. Chicago Beer Snob said, thank you for the brief introduction to Jesse Jackson. Being like Max, I wasn't aware of this information until this episode. And a quail discipline said, Why? That oh, actually no. looks like quail to me. I'm sorry. There's no L. No, I have to put my glasses on. Damn it. At Kwai Discipline said, I was already a huge fan of this podcast and this latest episode of the Jesse Jackson speech made me fall in love with it on a new level. Thank you so much, Max. 99 and Manny. Rybread NYC said, I had goosebumps listening to the clips in the last episode. And Midwest Monster said, when I was a kid, all I heard was that this guy was a, quote, race baiter. Glad I learned to read books. Rob Nasby said, for a long time, I've said that Reagan was the worst president in modern times. Now I think Clinton takes the second spot by destroying the progressive Democratic Party. Oh, Rob, wait till I'm done with part three. <laughs> you might have to shift the order. We'll see. And John S. said, this is podcast sound engineering masterwork. Hashtag I understand. Hashtag praise Manny. Thank you. 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 Thank you at UNFTR pod, Jesse Jackson for president. And Will Watkins fourth. Hold for it. I am William Wallace. More about the impacts of the Clintons and the further embrace of neoliberal ideals in the Democratic Party. Interesting touch on how this made the two major parties so much more similar and led to today's culture wars. Thank you. Thank you. And Z Reed, lastly for for Twitter, well, Twitter on the Clinton front. Uh, hey, UNFTR pod, especially 99. That's Ooh. me. Stickers came in today. They look amazing. I can't wait to smash one of these <laughs> with unbridled enthusiasm somewhere that will get noticed. Also shouts to Manny Faces for his work on the Jay Jackson speech. That was nothing short of a masterpiece. And our last tweet was from Eskimo Prince, who sent us a photo 
of the UNFTR sticker placed on a gas pump. Not placed by anybody we no, know, no, not just, placed by Eskimo yeah, friends, just seen yeah. out there in the wild. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Nobody um, defaming, defiling, exactly. or, right? It's fine. So that's exciting. Yes, I definitely took a little longer than I uh, promised getting stickers out. Oops. Um, but they got there. That's what's important. Yeah, it's good stuff. And and please do send us, uh, if you happen to see them in the wild, please do send us a picture of them. Now over to Instagram, Brian, at, oh, and listen, before we do Instagram, uh, I was so thrilled to see all of the kudos to Manny for the sound design, particularly on the Jackson speech. And we had teed it up. You all got it. So uh, thank you for remarking on that. And I know Manny felt pretty good about getting some of that, uh, some of those accolades. Thank you. 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 Now on Instagram, Brian Ed said, great episode. I grew up hearing Jesse Jackson on TV and radio everywhere. When I stopped wasting my brain in my late 20s, I started to notice Bernie and immediately noticed who he was obviously inspired by. Sadly, when I was going to college in 2016, most of the kids at school had never heard of Jesse Jackson. Yeah, all true, man. It's all true. So, Brian, and thank you for the good end cap on uh, on that over on social. I do like a, the last line in this message. Sorry. No, Brian said... There's a lot of lip service, but no one is actually picking up the dog turds before mowing the lawn. We just keep driving over shit and then pretend we don't know why the grass won't grow in some <laughs> spots and everything smells. It's very that poetic. Great. That's excellent. Now over on Substack, Rick R. said, I wish I was more politically awake when Jesse Jackson was running, but as a high school kid, I couldn't have given a shit. I grew up in a very conservative household. So my dad, who is not only a conservative Mormon, but also a bit racist, Tainted my views of JJ, unfortunately. Rick R., you weren't alone in that. The Ugandan picked up on that and said, Max, thank you for introducing the real Reverend Jesse Jackson. Having grown up elsewhere, I came to hear of Rev Jackson when he was mired in scandal. I'm disappointed I couldn't appreciate the man till now. I took a moment and listened to his entire 88 speech. Besides feeling like I was cutting up onions, it wasn't lost on me that there were so many echoes of Bernie Sanders in his points. Indeed, it was by far the best progressive speech I've ever heard. Me too. Can't believe the DNC screwed him over like that. Favorite line, better to have Roosevelt in a wheelchair than Reagan and Bush on a horse. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for taking me on this deep dive of appreciation. Now let's get over to coffee donations for all the people who are funding the show and making this happen. We'll start it off with Brian O, who's now a member. Discovered y'all with the American Prestige UNFTR mashup and damn, I've been binging your back catalog ever since. Can't wait to try the coffee. If it says half as fucking good as the pod, then fucking fuck. <laughs> M in Sweden is now a member. Ooh, yeah. Bork, bork, bork. Okay. It's a Swedish chef. Oh, got it. Mm -hmm. Well, Scotty Dyson 12, not in Sweden, also a member. UNFTR team, I came to the show from Pitchfork Economics. I've loved every episode. Yay. Sheriff is now a member. Imagining a world where the sticker I'm given. Imagining a world where the stickers I'm given sends an avalanche of mile-high fuckers your way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I had brain freeze on like, this. There was a lot of punctuation going like on the all woman at once. And I was with like, the, mm. like the meme where she's like trying to do the math. That was you. <laughs> there was so much punctuation stuck in all at once. And my brain actually, it actually just stuck. <laughs> it's so unfortunate. Uh, Dr. Evil Eva is now a member. Thank you for putting out such well-researched content. 
And Nathan Surst bought three coffees. I hesitated to listen to the Clinton episodes because I was always a fan of him in the past. However, it was good to hear the truth, and I think you handled it fairly. Good stuff. Thank you, Nathan, for uh, for writing in and, of course, for being an over-caffeinated member of the show. Reciprocal Hokey bought us five coffees. Reciprocal Hokey! Good to hear from you. Hey, Max, I have a simpler definition of woke. Oh, I saw this one come in. I Can, can I tell you? I, I fucking love this. It It's so elegant in its simplicity and it really it really just it hit me the right way okay max i have a simpler definition of woke and i think it will box in the trolls on the right by its nature woke equals the golden rule how can they argue with treating others as they would have them treat themselves if anybody ever asks unfuckers well what's your definition of woke just do as reciprocal hokey would do and say, it's kind of like the golden rule. And then go quiet and let them wrap their fucking stupid heads around that. That is so brilliant. Thank you. And with Aloha, bought five coffees, said I'm a long time listener with two young daughters, have a real concern for their future. In an attempt to combat my right wing family, I am now donating all checks received from them for birthdays, Christmas, etc., to various progressive causes. Please continue doing what you do. With Aloha, that just made my heart sing. <laughs> so Derek R. bought three coffees. Hi, this is Derek R. the other, question mark, question mark, the second. I think we have four Derek R.'s. Seriously? I swear. Two of them have the same last name. Remember homophone, not mm-hmm. homophobe. Right. <laughs> and the other two have completely different last names, but both Derek R. And sometimes they write in being like, I'm Derek R. And I'm like, but you're not the Derek R. who I was talking about. Please stand up. Yeah. <laughs> so we have four Derek R.'s. I don't know how I'm going to categorize. I think you guys can just be like a cute little cohort of Derek's. The Council of Derek's, like the Council of Rick's and Rick and Morty. Ooh, I like that. Okay. So one of the council members of Derek's said... (laughs) Make that so. Let's do that. Wanted to give you all coffee. You all do such amazing work. I will do my best to spread unfucking around and enlighten people so we can get 1K to the peeps. Very interested in this Clinton series. I want to know more about who, what, and why they are. They've always been evil in my family, so I guess they, you know. Mm-hmm. On a personal note, starting to get my conservative mother to start to see the fucking we are all receiving. That's great. That is great. Maybe Good the Clinton stuff. episodes will help. I because think so. Especially for it, someone. We can all hate them together. Yeah, that's, that's when I, I was having this conversation recently about Biden. Like, we all hate him just for different reasons. That's right. So we can all be aligned. The enemy, my enemy is my friend. Maybe? Question mark? I don't think that works here. Progressives are the answer. But with your mom here... You can say, hey, look, I hate Clinton too, but for different reasons. Here's why. It's a great starting line. Yeah. Heath D. bought us three coffees. Great show, informative, and witty. I love the name. And that we're referred to as unfuckers. My level of awareness has increased a hundred times. I'm sold hook, line, and sinker. Just got my coffee today. Feel a little better that I helped support some Native Americans who have been super fucked for centuries. Many thanks to all the hard work. P.S. Double fuck you to Milton Friedman. And not the good kind. Oh, wow. That's an, that's an old reference. Yeah. Bringing that back. Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. And then Bookstore Kim bought six coffees. She brought three coffees just cause, but then bought these three and said, just read the other coffee donations and I'm buying these coffees for Maria from Puerto Rico and her suggestion of Ron Little Dick Santos. Love you, Maria. <laughs> I have, um, I, I was talking over the weekend with somebody talking about retirement days and down the road and all this kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, I said, for me, it's, uh, 
just gonna find a little cabin in Vermont and just go hang out with bookstore Kim all day long, <laughs> not even realizing that in the context of the conversation I was having with the person, that that would have made absolutely no like, fucking okay. sense. Like, Who the fuck is bookstore Kim? I was like, ah, it's just, never mind. Anyway. You don't know? <laughs> and then we got uh, a review from Brown Pride. I normally don't leave a review, but I was taking a break from the news, the Young Turks Network, and wanted to find something else to listen to. While I'm at work and I stumbled across this podcast and I definitely like the interaction between the two hosts. Hey, that's us. Mm -hmm. And the impressions of people are so hilarious in my new favorite podcast ever before the ESPN sports podcast. Okay, that's high praise. It is. People love their sports. All good stuff. Thank you, everybody. I know that we were a little exhausting today. Um, apologize <laughs> I think we've had for the good length. Conversations, though. I feel like we did. I guess we'll know. Yeah, I mean, I They'll definitely think that we've spent a lot of the last couple of weeks talking about uh, ketchup and mustard, and um, you know, <laughs> so at least we got somewhere today. Butthole centipedes. Yeah, great name for a band. That's what Bobby McDee said. I said our friend, the captain, can write a song. Imagine a cool like punk rock Irish sounding song about. Butthole Did you hear centipedes? from the captain, by the way? Does he know that you we went out on him? I don't know yet. He hasn't written in. It was fun. Isn't it real? I was like, it was catchy and yeah. it was fun, right? Uh, I just want to say that apparently Joe Rogan uh, called Trump a drugged out man baby, <laughs> and I think that's funny. And the first thing I've thought he did that's funny. Yeah, yeah, and he also said uh, he's going to back Ron DeSantis. What? Yep. Never mind. Ron DeSantis literally is a man baby. All right, on fuckers. We'll catch you this weekend for part three. Giving it all we got. And then uh, at the end of part three and post-show musings, we'll give you a little bit of an update of what we're going to do over the break. Catch you next week. Thanks, 99. Bye. Thank you. 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 Thank you.